I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast contains references to violent crime and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Monday the 23rd of September 1935. That was the day that Sydney taxi driver John Smiley was gunned down in his cab. It'd be six months before police caught his alleged killer, and what came after that was one of Australia's strangest, saddest and longest legal cases. John Smiley was born in 1897 and had enlisted to fight in the Great War in September 1914. For the next four years, he'd serve as a driver in the 1st Australian Field Artillery. After repatriation, he continued driving, operating a taxi in Sydney. John got married to a young woman named Jean, and by the 23rd of September 1935, she was six months pregnant. That night, John picked up a fare in Castlereagh Street in the city and drove his young male passenger along Parramatta Road to near the sale yards in Flemington. When John pulled over, the man in the rear seat shot him three or four times in the back, accounts vary, and then hit him on the head. John Smiley staggered out of the car onto the road and, as cyclists approached, his attacker jumped a fence and escaped into the darkness. Remarkably, John Smiley was still alive. He was rushed to hospital where he was conscious and coherent enough to make a dying declaration. In this statement, he said that the man who'd shot him was someone he'd never seen before, that he was about 20 years old, with a boyish face, medium complexion, and that he stood 5 foot 5. The bullets had done John Smiley horrific internal damage, and he died the next day. Police were baffled by the motive. As The Sun reported, quote, Some officers hold the view that the murder was an act of savage revenge, so deliberate was the manner in which it was carried out. It seemed like the sort of murder that might be the fate awaiting the dead man's cousin, William Smiley, the notorious Razor gangster whose story we heard in the 13th of July episode. William Smiley had plenty of enemies, and he'd actually just been released from prison two weeks before John was shot. And less than three weeks later, William would be shot and wounded on a Sydney street. So had John Smiley been murdered by the underworld in a case of mistaken identity? William Smiley's name was mentioned by John's widow Jean at the inquest in mid-December, the inquest that ended with a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. With that, it looked like the case would remain unsolved. Then, on the 6th of March 1936, Sydney detectives, acting on new information, visited an inner-city factory and arrested their man, or rather, arrested their boy. He was Boyd Sinclair, aged just 17. Boyd's family lived in Erskineville. With his father an invalid and his mother working as a cleaner, Boyd had left school at 14 and started working to help support his parents. He was continuing his education at night school and hoping to sit his intermediate exams in 1937. 
Boyd was a studious lad who wanted to go to university, and he enjoyed writing short stories of the fantastic variety. Yet, on the 23rd of September 1935, this unassuming lad had gone out and cold-bloodedly murdered a Sydney taxi driver. Thing was though, Boyd stood nearly six feet tall and had a fair complexion, which didn't tally with John Smiley's dying deposition that the man who'd shot him was five foot five and had a medium complexion. Boyd Sinclair was grilled by police for eight hours, during which he made a detailed confession. This confession, while incredibly vivid, didn't actually match some of the details that John Smiley had given before he died. Some of its details made little sense, such as Boyd saying he'd committed this murder on impulse so he could steal the taxi and use it to commit other crimes. But Boyd didn't know how to drive, and this inconvenient truth was explained away in his statement by him saying he'd figured he'd just figure it out. After being charged with murder, Boyd appeared in Central Court on the 7th of March and was remanded without bail. On the 19th of March, while he was in hospital at Long Bay Jail, he was visited by two doctors, and they certified Boyd Sinclair insane and ordered him removed to the criminal section of Parramatta Mental Institution. His mother Rose said there had to be a mistake. She said her boy was completely normal in the six months leading up to his alleged crime. She said that when she'd visited her son after his arrest and said there's no way he could have done it, he'd said to her the police had told him he'd done it and so he must be guilty. Boyd's teachers and employers also expressed disbelief, telling newspapers he was a quiet boy of good character. On the 24th of April 1936, Rose moved in the equity court that her son be released from the asylum so he could be tried for murder and allowed to establish his innocence. The judge ordered that Boyd should be brought before him on the 7th of May so he could assess his sanity and his fitness to plead. When this was about to happen though, Rose dropped the application. Why? It's not clear. My best guess is that she was told something, most likely given legal advice, that swayed her to think her son's case was hopeless. This might have related to Boyd's homosexuality, which would be publicly raised in court as proof that he was insane. Afterwards though, Rose would fight long and hard to have Boyd's sanity properly assessed in court so he could receive a fair trial. In early August 1943, Nearly eight years after John Smiley died, Rose succeeded in getting the Board of Official Visitors to Metropolitan Mental Asylums to hold an inquiry. Rose said that Boyd had made his confession under mental duress that had been exacerbated by police refusing to allow him to eat or drink during the eight-hour interrogation. She argued that her son was now sane and claimed the police confession was ludicrous and invalid. The Board of Official Visitors would, in February 1944, find Boyd Sinclair sane and able to plead. But other government-appointed psychiatrists decided that he had a, quote, split personality and thus wasn't able to understand a trial. So Boyd wouldn't get his day in court and he'd remain in the asylum. His case was taken up by Lillian Fowler, who'd been Australia's first woman mayor, serving Newtown in the late 1930s before becoming a state Labor MP. On the 6th of July 1944, she told the Sun newspaper, quote, 
the incarceration of Boyd Sinclair for more than eight years without his being brought to trial or even asked to plead is one of the most disgraceful chapters in the history of justice in this state. Lillian Fowler continued, quote, He is gentlemanly in character, well-educated and quiet in demeanour. We are not asking that Boyd Sinclair go free, but merely that he be given the opportunity of answering this charge of murder before the court. I have seen him and I say that he is not insane in any way. Lillian Fowler and other supporters would keep fighting for Boyd, arguing that the delay in a trial was making his innocence ever harder to prove given key defence witnesses such as his father were now dead. In September 1945, a decade after John Smiley was killed, Mr Justice Nicholas recommended that Boyd Sinclair was fit to plead and ought to be tried. Still, it didn't happen. In March the following year, a Newtown Reverend, S.W. McKibben, erected a sign outside his Methodist church that read, quote, Insanity is not the issue. Boyd Sinclair has been 10 years in a criminal cell without a trial, the state consenting. The Sun newspaper took up the case in an editorial under the headline, No Punishment Without Trial, saying that the case was troubling the conscience of the state. But it wasn't until Lillian Fowler convinced her parliamentary colleagues to amend the Lunacy Act that Boyd Sinclair was to get his day in court, with a jury empowered to decide if the accused was fit to be tried. At the start of July 1946, the court heard from doctors who testified Boyd Sinclair was insane, and it heard from supporters who said he was capable of understanding the charges and entering a plea. The jury found him fit to plead. On the 29th of July 1946, nearly 11 years after the murder, Boyd Sinclair went to trial and entered his plea of not guilty. He had not, he said, shot John Smiley. The court heard from one of the psychiatrists who'd first seen him back in 1936 and who'd concluded then he was a schizophrenic living in a fantasy world, a fantasy world that might very well have led him to make a false confession. Another psychiatrist who'd interviewed Boyd in prison more recently testified that he'd tried to hang himself and that he was fascinated by, quote, disgusting sex acts and that he was, quote, addicted to homosexuality. It's worth noting that back then, masturbation, homosexuality and attempting suicide were believed proof of insanity. Boyd Sinclair was also deemed paranoid because he feared other inmates in the mental asylum, though such a fear would seem perfectly sane for a man who'd been held without trial for a decade in the same prison as violently disturbed criminals who'd been put there by judges and juries. The main evidence against Boyd was his handwritten confession. He said he couldn't remember making it and if he had, it had been a fantasy coming from his deluded mind. Even then, false confessions by the mentally ill were recognised by police and the courts as commonplace. Today, we're also far more aware of how such false confessions were historically extracted by police confronted with cases they couldn't solve. The main witness in the trial against Boyd was his former friend Vincent Graham. Vincent claimed that in 1935, prior to the murder, he'd found a 32 caliber revolver and he'd kept it and made a leather pouch for the gun. In mid-September, he was going on holiday and he wanted to borrow Boyd's P-rifle, so the boys did a temporary swap. 
When Vincent came back and asked for his revolver, Boyd said he'd lost it and then spontaneously confessed to murdering John Smiley. Vincent said he thought that his friend was joking, though he also testified that the eccentric Boyd had apparently made previous comments about murdering people and going on a criminal rampage. The leather pouch for the gun had been found near the scene of the shooting, though the gun itself was never recovered. Boyd Sinclair told the court he had been friends with Vincent, but denied having ever seen a revolver, doing a swap, or using the gun to shoot the taxi driver. The defence's argument was that Vincent Graham, while not himself guilty of the crime, was lying to frame Boyd and that he knew more than he was letting on. There was also reasonable doubt, the defence argued, because Boyd didn't match the physical description that John Smiley had given in his dying deposition and that Boyd had been of unsound mind when he made the confession under mental duress. The defence also raised the possibility that someone else had shot John Smiley because they thought that the taxi driver was his cousin, the notorious razor gangster William, who by that stage was six years in the grave after being shot to death. The jury had three verdicts open to them, not guilty, not guilty via reason of insanity, or guilty. The jury went with the third one, guilty. As the crime had been committed when Boyd was 17, he avoided the death penalty and was instead sentenced to life in prison with hard labour. His mother sought leave to appeal, which was denied, and Boyd was soon again declared insane and kept in the criminal section of Parramatta Mental Asylum. Over the years, it'd be requested that he be transferred to the free section where he wouldn't be among criminals and he might receive treatment and be rehabilitated. This request would be denied. In 1954, Boyd would be denied the chance to prove his sanity in court. It would also be argued that as he'd served 20 years, he'd fulfilled his life sentence and that he should be freed as he no longer posed a danger to society. That bid for freedom was also unsuccessful. Boyd Sinclair would be transferred to Long Bay Jail and his name would fade from the newspapers. His mother, his greatest champion, died in 1964. Outside the walls of Long Bay, the world changed. There was rock and roll, Sputnik, the assassination of JFK, as well as all the way with LBJ as Australia went to war in Vietnam. In 1970, federal Labor politician Tom Uren was at an anti-Vietnam War protest in Sydney when he was allegedly assaulted by a policeman. Tom Uren pursued this matter in a civil action, and when this failed, he was ordered by the court to pay $80 in costs. The Labor politician refused, and the following April, Tom Uren was sent to Long Bay Jail for 40 days with hard labor. Inside, he met other inmates, including Boyd Sinclair. He was then 53, having served 34 years, making him the longest-serving prisoner of modern times. Tom Uren was fascinated by this man who could converse about electoral boundaries, air pollution from jet aircraft, and the future development of Australia's cities. Boyd Sinclair even recommended which shares were most likely to return a good investment, though Tom Uren had to stop him right there because, as a socialist, he didn't believe in making such profits. When Tom Uren was released after just 38 hours of his sentence, he told the newspapers of Boyd Sinclair, quote, It seems to be a barbaric action that such men should still be in jail in this day and age. 
Following his comments, the New South Wales Justice Minister said he was not considering Boyd's parole at that time, but he would if and when he became eligible. Whether this renewed publicity was just a coincidence isn't clear, but Boyd Sinclair was released from jail in November 1971, having been behind bars for 35 and a half years. Newspaper photographers took pictures of him, balding but healthy and happy looking, as he explored a strange changed world that included city streets with massive skyscrapers and the gizmos of a television studio. Boyd was also photographed outside what had been his family home 36 years earlier. He said it hadn't changed except for the paint job. In February 1972, Boyd Sinclair was reported to have gotten a job, working, of all things, as a clerk in a Sydney psychiatric hospital. After that, he'd live out of the spotlight for the next three decades and die in November 2003 at the age of 85. Did Boyd Sinclair murder John Smiley? At this remove, it's impossible to say, though the case seems incredibly weak and compromised. Given the circumstances of Boyd's confession, the reasons he was declared insane, and the decade he spent behind bars without a chance to state his case in court, I think it is possible to conclude that he didn't get what we would consider justice and a fair trial. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. I'll be taking a short break from this podcast, but I will return with new episodes in October. In the meantime, if you'd like to show your support for Australia on This Day, please leave a rating and review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Australia on This Day was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.